Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Elena McGrath. Today we are talking with Jake Blanc, the author of Before the Flood, The Itaipu Dam and the Visibility of Rural Brazil, out last year from Duke University Press. Jake is a lecturer in Latin American history at the University of Edinburgh and the co-editor of Big Water, The Making of the Borderlands Between Brazil, Argentina, and Paraguay. So thank you, Jake, for joining us today and welcome. Thanks, Elena. Really happy to be on the podcast. So let's start with a little bit of background. How did you come to write a book about um, this giant dam on the Brazilian borderlands? Sure. And I guess, you know, start off with with full transparency that I had no idea that this dam existed before I started grad school. Um, I had a general idea that I wanted to study labor movements in Latin America. And then from there, I kind of moved more towards the countryside, wanting to look at rural labor movements and kind of uh, countryside uh, agrarian reform and politics amongst different categories of, you know, of, of rural inhabitants and indigenous groups. And somehow kind of in these early stages of grad school, I then stumbled upon uh, this Itaipu Dam, um, which is, you know, the, the largest hydroelectric project in the world at the time, um, which I only found about uh, in, in doing this research. And then kind of the more I dug into the project, the more kind of kept unfolding. I saw that there was new layers of kind of internal conflict amongst these different rural groups, the relationship between different aspects of the military dictatorship along with what was going on with the dictatorship in Paraguay as well. And it just kind of kept blossoming in a way that I really hadn't expected. And so the challenge there was figuring out which which threads to follow and kind of how I wanted to present the multiple narratives um, that were really kind of coming out in everything that was happening around this dam. Yeah, that's great. And it's such a it's such a good uh, way of entering a bunch of different, really fascinating questions. Um, and so one of the things you argue is that rural protests against the dam ended up being a referendum on the dictatorship um, in Brazil. And, and this is like, this is a dictatorship that had really made it very difficult for people to otherwise protest. And so what, what made this possible? Like what made the dam so crucial? Well, so I think there are a few things there. And the the first has to do with kind of chronology and the specific period during Brazil's dictatorship that the dam was starting to be built. Uh, so 21-year dictatorship from 1964 to 1985. And although the dam had been kind of in the works uh, since the, the early 60s, actually, so even before the military came to power, it was only 1973 that the treaty was signed. And then between kind of 75 and 76 that the dam was actually the construction on the dam started to go forward. So what this means is we're in the second half of the dictatorship. And at this point, 
kind of the military regime had been forced to loosen its grip on power. Kind of in the early 70s, there was a resurgence of opposition movements from, from students and human rights activists and progressive clergy. And so by the second half of this decade in the 1970s, you see these small spaces of dissent starting to reemerge. Right. And so when the dam starts being built and when the military starts to oversee what is going to be the crown jewel of its development model, there are different areas in the country, in different sectors of civil society that kind of feel re-emboldened to, to assert themselves and to start having serious discussions and, and actioning those discussions of what a possible democracy might look like. Right. But then on the other hand, you have the dictatorship wanting to keep control of the process of democratization, right? which in Brazil was something that was known as the abertura, the Portuguese word for opening. And so in this kind of this nexus of a reemerging civil opposition and a very technocratic authoritarian regime that wants to kind of keep this veneer of control for how long it can keep uh, running the country, you get this massive development project that is kind of premised on the idea that it is going to be the biggest in the world. It is going to showcase to the world that Brazil is strong, that it is powerful. So here we have these kind of conflicting um, optics, if you will, of, of who gets to control Brazil's future. So, yeah, that's great. And so, um, since you bring up optics, I wanted to think a little bit about the use of visibility in your book. And so visibility is, is even part of the title, but you are really thinking about this as a crucial way of looking at what is going on in the politics of, um, in, of the dam and also the dictatorship and civil society in Brazil. So, so what brought you to visibility and how does it work in your book? So I guess I, I came about the idea of visibility when I was done with all the research and when I was trying to find some sort of a theoretical framework or even, you know, kind of uh, an anchor to bring together all these different threads. And it kept coming back to this question of visible to whom, right? So I have all these different actors in the book. We have uh, landed small farmers, landless peasants, indigenous groups, um, you know, union leaders in cities, political leaders uh, in the capital, and they're competing in a certain sense for who gets to make political claims, right? Whose livelihoods is elevated to such an extent that they're even allowed to make those claims in the first place. So it gets to this idea of kind of who is seen and why. And because so much of my focus was on the countryside, it kind of comes to this idea of, well, what space does the countryside in Brazil and across Latin America occupy in national imaginaries, right? So how is the countryside seen from within mainstream spaces. And then more importantly, given the fact that I'm kind of looking at uh, a grassroots subaltern uh, series of histories, I also want to know why certain groups are seen as more legitimate than others, while others get rendered invisible, right? So then what are the dynamics and kind of contingencies of life in the countryside that condition certain groups to have more visibility than others, right? And so here it's competing for public opinion, not only amongst other grassroots its movements, but for public opinion against the dictatorship as well. Right? And that comes back to this question of, of optics, as we said, or kind of claims to, to being legitimate members of what they hope will be 
uh, a new democratic society. And one of the things that you sort of bring in is theorists who have talked about, especially in environmental studies, um, who have talked about the way that certain places are kind of actively unimagined. And so one of the things that dams actually do is um, contribute to the erasure of or the unimagining of the people as well as the place that was there before, the place that is literally now underwater. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Right. So, with with massive development projects, whether you know they're 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 dams or nuclear plants, there's this question of kind of blank canvases that, because of the large scale that these projects require, they tend to be built in sparsely populated areas, um, you know, far from mainstream uh, attention and, and spotlights in a way that they can kind of do whatever they want. Um, so we see, for the example, in Itaipu, this, this rural borderland kind of tucked away in the corner. Uh, it's, it's neighboring with Paraguay and Argentina. And so we see almost this kind of circular chicken and egg situation, right? Where because this space and spaces like this are considered invisible to begin with, right? They are, they are inhabited maybe by some rural communities that can be discarded because they are seen to be invisible to begin with. The government then goes and constructs these large mega projects, right? But precisely because they are then inserting themselves into these spaces that they had seen as invisible and bringing attention and resources, um, and again, a spotlight, it's that very spotlight that groups living there who are by no means invisible in their own lives are able to kind of insert themselves into and then start making their own counterclaims of being invis- of being visible, right? Of trying to reverse their own status of invisibility, which again, then in turn makes the government or the dictatorship in this case, try even harder to render them invisible because their presence there would make the construction of a dam or their sense of forward progress harder. Yeah, I think that's just such a great way of thinking about certain kinds of state building projects that are both um, all about the the bringing people into the centrality, at least in certain kind of narratives of the state, but also about necessarily um, then erasing them or making those people either not count or not um, not existent. Right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the land then, because you say in your book that this is this is not as much a story about water really as it is about land. Um, and you talk about a, a, a dialectic between land and legitimacy um, that that you see operating in, in these conflicts. So I want to start with um, this question that you ask at the very beginning of the book, which is what does the land mean to those who occupy it? Um, and so you identify a couple of different groups. You have titled farmers, landless peasants, indigenous peoples. Can you talk a little bit about what the land meant to those groups? Yeah, sure. So in, in the book, there are these three categories of, of farmers. And again, it's so problematic even putting lines around these three groups because there's so much uh, interaction and kind of fluidity between certain sectors as well. But the the, th- the three main groups for, for our purposes were that there were the these landed small farmers um, who, you know, had migrated into the southern Paraná borderlands in the 1940s and 1950s who tended to be from European descendant uh, Brazilian families, kind of small farmers from originally from Italy and from Germany um, who owned 
their legal property, right? So who these were all groups living in the flood zone of what became the Itaipu Dam. And this first group of landed farmer um, kind of fits the, the kind of typical mold that you would think about in terms of a mainstream farming archetype, right? So kind of they were phenotypically white. Um, they owned their, their plot that you know, as a relatively small um, plot of land, um, and within the you know grand scheme of things, they're still a very kind of poor, marginalized sector of Brazilian society. But they do fit a particular mold there of what Southern Brazil is and looks like, right? And so then, for them, their relationship to land is one of financial relationships, right? They own the land; that is their tie to the spaces that will soon be flooded by the dam. And then the second group are the landless peasants. Um, and these are uh, families that had more recently, uh, in the 60s and even the 70s, migrated down from northeastern Brazil. A lot of them came from Bahia, from Pernambuco and Ceará. Um, and because the northeast um, has its own histories of, of migration and demographics, these landless Brazilians tended to be um, phenotypically darker skin of mixed origins. And because they had come in as you know, any number of categories of landless workers, of uh, sharecroppers, tenant farmers, um, kind of day workers, they did not own the titles to the land that they were working, right? So they were, had a, they had a far more precarious relationship with the lands that were going to be flooded. And then third, we have the Ava Guarani indigenous peoples um, that lived uh, in this particular corner of, of Brazil, but also kind of across the triple frontier region, um, moving freely within spaces uh, of the national boundaries of Argentina and Paraguay as well. Um, and for this group that had, had lived in this region um, for hundreds and hundreds of years, long before the political borders between the three countries were put in effect, um, their relationship to land was something that was actually part of their ontology, right? It was part of their way of being and worldview in that region. And so what I'm arguing for in this idea of a dialectic of land and legitimacy is that it is precisely one's relationship to land that then determines not only the actions that take that they take, as in what their political goals are and what their strategies are to achieve those goals, but the extent to which those goals themselves are even seen as legitimate by mainstream actors. Yeah, I think that's, it's really great. And it's really clear, I think, in the book, the way these different kinds of groups who are all um, at a disadvantage, who are all poor in some ways, and who um, are making claims on the state and organizing, really, they're going to do this in different ways. And they're going to um, they're they're going to prioritize different kinds of politics, right? And so, how did the the relationships between these groups really shape the kinds of political claims that were made, and then how that played out at the at the level of the state? Sure. So, something that's really interesting about the case of Itaipu is because from the beginning of construction, there was a set target date of when the flood was going to happen, right? When the, these 1,500 kilometers of land were going to be placed underwater. So we have this, you know, pressure cooker and very limited amount of time when these rural groups will come together to a certain extent and fight together. And then once that immediate 
enemy or that target is gone and the lands are flooded, what those bonds of solidarity um, might look like afterwards also interacts with these questions of legitimacy. So beginning in the late 70s and then really taking off in the early 80s, the main movement that led this this opposition to the Itaipu Dam was something that became called uh, the land injustice movement. Um, And that brought together mostly the landed farmers and the landless peasants um, that were living in the area, though with some gestures of solidarity to the Avant-Guarani. But so in those moments, and kind of very much contextualized by the context of democratization and the fight against dictatorship that was going on, you see certain strategies and certain demands come to the top of this MJT movement, right? So they, they staged uh, long land encampments outside, outside of the construction site of the dam. And although... At different moments, there were some discussions about more structural issues, about agrarian reform, about um, items that would benefit even those who did not own legally their land that they worked. At the end, the main goals of the movement was actually to get more money for the lands that were going to be flooded, right? So over and over again, these farmers are essentially negotiating with Itaipu, which is kind of itself a branch of the military regime. They're negotiating to get more money, right? What In the end, they ended up asking for about the equivalent of $5,000 more per family of those that were going to be expropriated and displaced, right? So by the main demand coming down to a question of financial indemnification, you're foreclosing any opportunity to build something larger, something more structural to change the dynamics of life in the countryside. Essentially, you're saying, okay, if you give us more money, we will then be able to buy new properties close by. And in the end, that's what ended up happening. Um, and to the MJT's absolute credit, um, it's, a, it's a great story of, of social activism and perseverance. They do get Itaipu and the Brazilian military to increase its uh, financial payout of almost uh, 65%, right? And for poor farming families, this is really useful and it really helps. And it allows those that had the legal title to their land to be able to stay somewhat close by to where their homes were, right? They're able to take this money and go buy property elsewhere, right? But that wasn't the case for the other two groups that were involved in this fight, right? For the landless farmers, all they got essentially was the politicizing effect of having been involved in these struggles, right? And we can talk later also about kind of the political consciousness raising that happened in this. But without money to then buy new lands, displaced landless peasants um, are forced to relocate far, far away on agrarian resettlement projects. Many of them also uh, seek out employment in cities. This was also the time in Brazilian history um, when you get the first shift to a majority of the population living in cities rather than countryside for the first time. So this is part of a larger narrative as well. And so for these landless groups that were involved in the fight at Itaipu, but were marginalized within them, both kind of socially and in terms of the demands that were being made, this leaves them in a precarious situation where they don't have money, they don't have their homes anymore, and they don't have the political umbrella organizations that had helped in this initial fight. Right? And so this is something that we then see come directly out of this is 
what was also part of a larger national movement at this time of organizing landless workers. And in the book, I show some of the kind of um, unstudied links of how the, the MST, the landless workers movement, that is now one of the largest social movements in the Western hemisphere, um, in several important ways came out of some of these struggles at Itaipu, right? And so here to this question of land and legitimacy, these landless farmers at Itaipu saw their form of legitimacy were emerging from the fact that they saw land as a fundamental right, right? So they saw their access to land as a driving force for them taking a stand against this violent military regime. And it was precisely that view that land exists as a right for all Brazilians, regardless of legal claim to that land, that is what motivated them to then take far more confrontational tactics after the fight at Itaipu. So rather than just uh, organizing land encampments on the periphery of the dam's uh, construction site um, in the subsequent years, um, they, along with several other uh, landless peasant organizations in the area and then across Brazil, start occupying land directly. Right, and this this leads to the tactic uh, that we now see kind of predominating across Brazil and elsewhere in Latin America, well as well of direct land occupations to force the government to expropriate that land and then give the title to the rural community. I think I think that's really interesting, and I'm glad that you brought in the kind of consciousness raising element because. This is something that if you if you don't study Brazil, you've probably heard of the landless uh, uh, the, the movement for people without land, right? Like this is something that is a huge force across Latin America, and um, it's I think the way that you set this up is is really helpful and instructive because you have you have this uh, this coalition that exists before the flood, and that doesn't have the same interests after the flood, and then you. Um, and the way you put that is like the only thing they got was that consciousness raising, that that experience, political organizing. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this, um, the, the kind of timing of the flood, right? Because it's um, the flood is preordained. Um, everyone is organizing towards it. But it, there is also this sort of um, not coincidence of timing where you have um, after the flood is also the time that Brazil is sort of negotiating its return to democracy. Right. So um, in in many ways, you you sort of suggest how the, the fate of these movements can show us something about what were the possible conditions of Brazilian democracy immediately after the dictatorship. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And, and to the extent that the, the movements that Itaipu largely failed, right, they didn't win all of their demands, the you know, their their homes were destroyed underwater. Uh, they were forced to kind of disperse throughout the country, right? There's also an analogous argument that Brazilian democracy failed, right? That the, the process of the abertura itself ultimately did stay controlled by the military and by civilian elites that didn't want a fundamental new democracy, right? There were, there were movements that didn't want something new, they would have been more comfortable with a return to the pre-dictatorship status quo, right? So the opportunity to have advocated and then won something more far-reaching in many ways was missed, which is why, you know, there's, I'm not the only one making this argument that the process of Brazil's 
democratization was was quite hollow in the end, which is why even though civilian rule officially returns in 1985, it, Brazil doesn't have its first direct uh, election for president until 1989, or the elections in 88, the, the president takes office in 1989. And so this long, drawn-out process of trying to bring democracy back to Brazil kind of opens up the question of what democracy in Brazil even meant to begin with, right? And so that's something that I'm looking at in this book is for groups like rural Brazilians or really any marginalized, non-elite, non-mainstream sector of society, what would an ideal future society look like? For the, for the actors in my book, then using the question of land to get at actually existing uh, political movements, why before the military took over in 1964 did groups like the landed farmers and these landless peasants and indigenous groups, why were they advocating particular types of political citizenship and rights that didn't exist either under dictatorship or democracy? And then once we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel in the early 1980s, and there's questions about where Brazil is going next, why this is an opportunity for marginalized groups like those in the, in the Paraná borderlands to actually start advocating for something different, right? They don't want just the return of political rights and, uh, you know, loosening of censorship and direct presidential elections for the first time. They want something new, right? They want something that for, for the actors in my book is questions about agrarian rights. And that is the basis for a rural kind of a rurally formed understanding of, of citizenship and democracy, but it's also spaces across the country for other groups that had been very much neglected and isolated from these processes of, of political decision-making to try to articulate something new. And to the extent that that failed or did not yield something fundamentally different um, can, can be debated, right? But what we see kind of after 1982 and in the following years, we see groups like the landless that, that I talk about, um, indigenous rights movements starting, environmental rights movements um, really starting to chip away at who, at, at chipping away at the control that elites and traditional mainstream actors had of determining kind of the, the contours of these political debates. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Um, and so I want to return to something that you said a little bit before that, um, that comes out in your book, which is that when we speak about a return to democracy, and we talk about this in Brazil and in many other places that experience dictatorship, it it implies conceptually that there was a time before when things were better, right? When democracy or a kind of inclusive project at least applied on some level. But when you think about the countryside and when you think about rural Brazilians, for a number of these actors there's a continuity of violence, right? There's an intensity of violence potentially around the dam. The military dictatorship has more technologies of violence, but the, the question of violence in the countryside or um, political exclusion, right, is not, um, is not new in 1964 or in 1968 or in the 70s. And so, um, so my question then is, um, how does, how did this come, how did you work to capture this sort of long history in your work while at the same time recognizing the, um, the, there, there were really important things that changed and that were different about the period of dam construction and the period of dictatorship. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a few aspects there. One, in terms of how I tried to conceptualize it, you know, I, I guess giving the title of the book or calling the book Before the Flood, what I'm trying to do essentially is set up where the, the flood is an analogy for dictatorship, right? So it is absolutely kind of the defining feature of this landscape at this time, both kind of the flood, which ended up being this irre- irreversible uh, mark on, on the topography, both kind of social and natural of the area, and also the dictatorship, right? So by saying, okay, we need to challenge the, the chronologies and the concepts of dictatorship and democracy, it's not trying to say, that dictatorship doesn't matter, right? Because there are so many tangible and, and as you say, so many violent um, realities um, that that are, you know, undisputable of what it meant to, to live in Brazil between 1964 and 1985. So what I wanted to do there was get us to think about, well, what happens when we try to understand these questions of, of violence and, and, and political representation and, and legitimacy what happens when we think about that before the dictatorship, before the flood, right? What what changes when we start to shift our attention there? So while most uh, scholarship on the dictatorship, you know, normally follows the, the the temporal brackets of 1964 to 1985, I start in the late 1950s, and in in large part that's because in this corner of Brazil, in the in the Paraná borderlands there was already a longstanding history of rural uh, agitation, right? Stretching back to a lot of the the farming and and peasant uh, movements um, demanding agrarian reform as, as early as the 1950s. Right. And so a lot, and uh, a lot of the farmers that I spoke with, their families had been involved in these movements. So there is a personal connection knowing that if it hadn't been for, you know, these earlier generations of struggles in this same region, we wouldn't even be in this region to begin with, let alone have some of the the kind of the personal anecdotes and references to be able to, to then inform what we're doing now. And then at the same time, it's equally important to say that the realities of what the dictatorship did absolutely did change kind of the stakes of what's happening. You know, as you say, they have they have new uh, technological prowess and the ability to insert themselves, right? The state has an ability to insert itself in this region in ways that were, that were entirely unparalleled. And what this does is it also connects people in the region to larger national stories. So again, uh, some of the communities that, that I spoke with and spent time with, when they're talking back in the, about this history, they use the word Itaipu in government interchangeably, right? Which to me shows a really fascinating insight into the way that their relationship with the Brazilian government or even to the Brazilian nation changed once Itaipu became kind of the defining feature in their day-to-day life in the 1970s and early 1980s, right? It all of a sudden says, okay, I have this connection with, with political structures with structures of, of surveillance, right? People were telling me, well, when all of a sudden for the first time now we needed to, to move about um, secretly, right? We, if we wanted to have a meeting about how to organize ourselves, we couldn't just go to each other's houses, right? Because all of a sudden we're aware that the dictatorship is here, that the Brazilian state is here. And, and why is that? What other rights might we not have at this moment? What rights do we even have at this moment? And you see the various groups actually invoke the military's own laws in their form of claims making. 
right? So we have the landed farmers talk about the 1967 constitution for why they should get more money for their land. The landless farmers talk about the land statute passed by the dictatorship in 1964, almost immediately after they seized power. And the indigenous groups invoke the 1973 indigenous law to talk about their rights, both in terms of territory and and cultural sovereignty. So there's an awareness here of what is taking place, particularly and specifically by the dictatorship that might not have existed previously, right? And this is a really tricky thing to balance when you're writing a history book is both saying, chronology doesn't matter, right? Um, One person's temporality isn't somebody else's. We need to take seriously these overlapping senses of time and linear and nonlinear storytelling at the same time, showing when certain chronologies actually do matter and why they perhaps become an overriding factor in these different stories that we're trying to tell. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your book balances that um, really effectively. And it's it's very readable. It's very engaging. Um, and so I want to just give a, a brief overview of sort of how you structured the book. And then I want to ask you about it a little bit more. Um, but for, for those of you who haven't read the book, um, you start off with um, the first three chapters are pretty straightforward history telling, right? You, you start um, before the dam, you end after the dam or after the flood. And um, you are, you are cr- uh, tracing the chronology of organizing and response. Um, and then the, in the second part of your book, you have a, you have four chapters that take a the sort of long historical view and focus in on in one case, um, you know, one political prisoner or a group of actors that have, in many ways, like a different relationship to the chronology that would be lost if you were to only focus on um, the, the joint narrative, as it were. And um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you. What made you decide to to do that kind of structure? And I I get a sense from some of the things you've been talking about, like it's a it's a very clear that you realized you needed to do something like this. Um, but for those of us writing books, is it hard to do that? <laughs> is my first question. And then how did you how did you pull out those individual stories? So um, chapter four on the Ava Warani, chapter five on um, a particular political prisoner chapter six on um, sort of colonization, frontier colonization. And then finally, you have sort of um, thinking about the agrarian reform. So yeah, if you could, if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, sure. That was, it was really hard <laughs> to the question of how, how hard is it to, to fit all of these <laughs> together? Extremely hard. Um, Excellent. I, I, so. <laughs> I probably started out as you know, of course, everyone does, particularly when you're imagining, you know, the the structure as, as a as a graduate student, you're thinking about what will make sense and hopefully um, not make you look like a fraud. So I, I started out with you know a, a almost a, a full just chronology, right? So there's those those seven chapters that you mentioned. I'd originally had a few more as well. I tried to fit it in. From, you know, okay, let's start in the late 1950s and go to 1984. What does that look like? It, and, it, and it felt forced. It felt difficult. Um, and it felt problematic because in trying to keep a linear chronology going, it's really hard to keep the kind of 
grassroots stories from being made secondary. Right. And that's a really tricky thing because there are dominant stories that kind of determine who the main players are pushing forward these chronologies. And so I found it really kind of upsetting almost that I was prioritizing certain stories rather than others, right? Which, which seemed to go against the entire purpose of why I was writing this. Um, so from the moment that I realized I needed to perhaps discard a few of the, the kind of the subplots in the story um, and even, you know, start experimenting with moving chapters around. Um, well, if, if I could have envisioned a perfect structure, I probably would have had a book in a form of like a wheel where at the center, you know, the, the hub is the Itaipu Dam. And then somehow I can have spokes leading out to other stories circling it. Um, but I'm not good enough at digital humanities to make uh, to make that possible. Um, so what I had to do was figure someday, out... Perhaps. Someday, someday. Um, we're all going to be teaching online now anyways. So I'll, yeah. I'll have some space to, to try to work with that. So, so what I did then was it, it, it comes back to this question of why I wanted to try to intervene in these concepts of chronology, right? If I'm trying to think of before and after an event or before and after uh, a sense of there being a political sea change or, or change uh, in the structure of government between a civilian and a military government, what I wanted to do then was, okay, I'm going to present first the basis that the main narrative exists, right? Okay. We have this understanding of Brazil's dictatorship, 64 to 1985, and there is kind of a linear progression, right? Things get worse in the late 1960s, early 1970s, then things start to get a little bit better, right? And then my story at Itaipu and the dam and the protest movements that came out of it, that fits into that narrative, um, not in a, in, a, in a perfect way, but it has its space there. And that's necessary to, to set up an awareness of, of what Brazil's dictatorship was, what was happening, and then particularly the, the dominant story that was made to, to be known of what happened at Itaipu, right? There's these, these protest movements were being covered in, in major press every single day, right? And again, this was in part because there is this international spotlight on the dam, but this story was known, right? It, it got some extent of notoriety. And so I felt it was necessary to show that first. In one part, maybe uh, as a bit of a, a academic straw man, right? I needed to then be able to pull it apart. Um, but also because I wanted to emphasize what was going on kind of parallel in, in different ways. And so that's why I had the second half of the book following these four threads that, you know, hopefully I try to weave together in a way that that seems um, unconfusing and compelling, but to emphasize the fact that these stories emerged before 1964, before Itaipu uh, as a project existed, before the dictatorship came to power that then oversaw the project and that ultimately would outlast the dictatorship and the flood itself also. So I wanted to have the second half of the book be a bit more of this kaleidoscope of stories that then had a, a more logical uh, kind of trajectory into the post-1985 systems of Brazil, where these stories continue and they continue to this day. 
Yeah. And so on that note, let's, um, let's focus in on just one of those stories. So um, chapter four, which is where you are talking about the Awarani community in this area. And as you know, this is, this is actually a pretty small community. I think it's like 20 families. Um, but it's important yeah. to yeah, it's just show under, how just under a hundred people. Yeah. So, so let's talk about um, what writing their history looked like and, and what that story tells us that we can't get at from looking at um, landless peasants or other communities. Sure. So, so something that's, you know, really important about the, the story of the Ava Guarani um, is, is the sense not, not only of kind of the, the history of, of, you know, of social bonds and, and political struggles that happened um, for a community that had lived in the area for hundreds of years. Um, and that is, has now been kind of relegated to, to really dire poverty um, in, in the region, um, but also kind of the, these, these counter stories of what, attachments to land look like and how they can be the basis not only for political claims but cultural claims as well because although the both the landed and the landless farmers use their relationship to land to advocate for for political claims what we have here with for the Guarani, as as with you know examples for indigenous groups across brazil is the need to articulate this duality of kind of defending your your political rights as a Brazilian, right, which which um, are based off of a particular type of, of legal understanding and, and political status, um, but also your cultural rights as an indigenous group. And because so much of that comes back to the question of land um, and the legitimacy that that confers for indigenous groups, it was an incredibly fraught process, particularly when that land was slated to be flooded, particularly when even within this kind of strata of already marginalized rural groups, you are at the bottom. Um, And then what that's going to look like when even in a potential democratic future, how do you continue to make claims? Who are the allies that you might have been building over the last few years? What will that look like when the larger umbrella goal of returning to democracy might be achieved to some extent? And, and how are the lessons going to continue into a new society or into a new social structure under a potential de- democratic regime when you might be left on your own a bit more than you even had been when you were part of a movement that was really focused on what was going on at the Itaipu Dam? That makes a lot of sense. Um, and so let's let's transition then a little bit more towards the present day and just think about, um, so, I mean, the situation is changing in Brazil. I think, uh, currently we have a moment where, um, the military, it has returned to a pretty prominent role in what's going on in Brazil. Um, not, and so how does your book give us tools for thinking about what's happening right now in Brazil and what is likely to, um, continue to happen in the future? I know historians are not not in the business of predicting the future. I always try to refuse that job myself, but I'm going to ask it of you a little sure. bit. <laughs> fair. No, that's, that's, that's a very fair question. So I think there are several themes from the book, particularly on 
having us rethink or at least complicate kind of these notions of dictatorship and democracy that, that you know, unfortunately still have a lot of uh, resonance today. Um, I think one of the first ones is questions of development and which systems of government governance we often assume with more kind of violent uh, forms of development, right? And so when we think, okay, something like the dictatorship did the Itaipu Dam, which is, you know, a form of violence in itself, um, along with forms of, of, of torture and extrajudicial killings, um, which are, again, um, kind of certain certain aspects that are coming back now, it's important to also highlight the fact that the Itaipu Dam was initially conceived before the dictatorship, right? It was built by the dictatorship, but its initial plans were put forth in the early 1960s when Brazil was ruled by uh, a leftist social reformer, João Goulart, right? So what is it about this appeal, this kind of allure of mega projects that could have as much support from the leftist uh, João Goulart uh, as it was with the military regime that overthrew him? And then we can jump decades ahead and see that kind of the, the analogous project uh, currently is the the Belamonchi Dam in the Amazonian state of Pará in Brazil, which although has been going through some fits and starts in the last few years, was actually kind of uh, put in, in motion again by the PT, the, the Workers' Party government of Dilma Rousseff, right? And so what is it about this, you know, this, this all-encompassing uh, attraction to development and these particularly these very large projects that, that seems to have no political affiliation? Right. It seems that all governments, to a certain extent, um, are very happy to get on board with these types of projects, uh, regardless of, of what their social cost might be. And, you know, that that has changed a little bit over time and, and, and to no small part because the lessons at Itaipu were then able to help launch different social movements. Um, when Itaipu was being built in the 70s, there was less of an environmental uh, movement. Then there is now. Uh, at the time, the, the demand actually wasn't to stop the dam being built, but as we discussed, it was more about financial compensation um, and then the, the, the kind of subplots that were related to that. But immediately after this, there is a movement uh, that then emerged um, that was called MABI, the, the movement against dams um, that really has taken on a large role. It was then renamed uh, CRABI, the Commission, uh, the Regional Commission Against Dams, that has helped spearhead a lot of the environmental and indigenous um, rights movements against these large-scale um, hydroelectric dam projects. And uh, we saw this kind of come back into the news a few years ago um, when uh, the dam in Minas Gerais burst um, in Brazil. Um, and so we see this kind of question of now that the, the first main generation of large hydroelectric dams um, are, are themselves getting into their kind of uh, their, their golden years and what upkeep on these projects that, you know, two generations ago were supposed to be transformational, we actually see aren't as permanent um, and uh, beneficial as they were originally uh, pitched to be. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think um, there there is this way in which these certain kinds of projects are are embraced by most governments as sort of these are these are 
moments of modernity that will transform us, right? These, the, if we do a project big enough, everything will change, but, but it's still made of concrete and it's still made of, um, you know, fallible stuff. Um, well, so, so, um, I think that we, uh, we are probably coming close to running out of time, but I wonder if there's anything else that, um, you want to talk about that we haven't brought up yet? I think I think we've 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 given uh, our, our listeners uh, a, a lot to go through. You know, I'll, I'll plenty give, to think know, about. <laughs> plenty, plenty, plenty to think about. Uh, you know, there's a lot of fun little anecdotes in the book and about the book um, that you know. Hopefully, reading reading it will will come out. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm just happy the book is 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 out there in the world and that that people will get to get to start reading some of these stories. It was it was really fun. It was exhausting, of course. Um, to to work on, but having it uh, be in the rearview mirror now actually feels quite surreal um, in a in a nice way. Hopefully, well, um, that's that's really great, and it is um, it's a fun book to read. So I'm I'm so glad you uh, you got it out there. Um, well, thank you so much, Jake, and I um, I hope you stay safe and uh, and uh, keep keep coming up with these great projects. Great. All right. Thanks, Lena.